Everybody, welcome to Talk with Francesca, talkwithfrancesca.com. I'm Francesca, and you're listening to AM 1510 NBC Sports Radio Boston. If you've got questions or you want to chime in on this conversation, email me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. All right, then. Mirror, mirror on the wall. How on earth did I take this fall? Drink, the intimate relationship between women and alcohol. An absolute essential read for every woman even women who are just social drinkers. Award-winning journalist Ann Dossett Johnson has combined in-depth research with her own personal story of recovery, and she delivers a groundbreaking examination of a shocking yet little-recognized epidemic threatening society today. The precipitous rise in risky drinking among, among women and girls, she brings shocking statistical evidence to light, revealing how dangerous levels of drinking is on the upswing. Ann Dossett-Johnson joins me here today on Talk with Francesca. Welcome, Ann. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm anxious to talk about this very provocative topic, and I love the name of your book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. It just, it's, it's a great name. Um, and you point out many educated and professional women are now drinking at an increasingly risky rate. So, of course, the big question is, why is there an increase in con- alcohol consumption? Well, what we're seeing is a rise in the developed world, right across the developed world, with the most sharp increase being in the U.K., where young women are presenting with late-stage alcohol uh, and liver-related diseases, classically seen as diseases of old men, in their 20s, which is amazing. But what's really fascinating is in the developed world, we're seeing the more professional and the educated the woman, the more likely is she to, is to be having trouble. So we're seeing high levels of binge and risky drinking in campuses, but we're seeing women not slow down in their 20s as they used to, um, not slow down in their 30s, not slow down in their 40s. Uh, we're seeing a very, very high uptick. And in fact, while men are starting to decline, in terms of alcohol consumption, women are not declining at all. And epidemiologists that I spoke to are scratching their heads. They just don't know what's happening. My book was an attempt to find out what indeed was happening. And? And so um, the, the main thing that I took a hard look at was the issue of perfectionism, the issue mm-hmm. that women have to be perfect in the workforce, they have to be perfect at home. They have to be perfect as mothers. They have to be perfectly slim. Um, and I think that there's an extraordinary amount of tension. So I raise the question, is alcohol the new steroid for the modern woman? The element that allows a woman to juggle a lot of roles and decompress at the end of the day, as I did, this is part memoir, where 
you at the end of the day. Pour a glass of wine or two glasses of wine as you're chopping vegetables and start to oversee homework. I think that's part of the issue. I think the other issue is that women tend to suffer from depression and anxiety more than men, and it's our easiest way to self-medicate. It's legal, it's our favorite drug, and pour a glass of wine and you can begin to unwind. So it's sort of, it's sort of like it's, at the end of the day. You know, when I was growing up and my dad would come home from work, he would have a martini or two. But um, I don't recall my mother having a drink with him. But I mean, I think women, you know, we we work and then it's the end of the day. It's like, oh, let's go out for a glass of wine. Uh, You know, it's 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 such a social thing, too. I mean, I just frankly, I I don't know. how, How do you even socialize without going out for a glass of wine? I mean, that's that's what we do. It's not that it's not that easy to no. tell you the truth as a woman who's now five years sober and sadly had to give it up and is very happy now. I have to tell you that it isn't that easy. And if you think women's book clubs, if you think women's women getting together for a girls' night out, if you think the products that are made for women, skinny girl vodka, mummy juice, girls' night out wine, French rabbit, these aren't pitched at men. These are pitched at women. Mm-hmm. And we t- can take it back to Carrie Bradshaw and her Cosmo, or we can um, look to any of these products, but the fact of the matter is we have a feminized drinking culture, and the liquor industry is there to meet us, and they're to court us, and they figured it out. They absolutely did. You wrote a 14-part series on women and alcohol appearing in the Toronto Star, which had gained wide acclaim. Can you tell us about that? I'm sorry, Francesca, I can't hear you. Oh, okay. I said you wrote a 14-part series on women and alcohol that appeared in the Toronto Star? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yeah? Okay. Yes. And it, it's gained wide acclaim. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I I had begun to do a lot of clipping of newspapers and noticed that there were, you know, uh, DUIs on the rise related to women and pitched this story and was told by the Toronto Star that it was totally under the radar. In fact, some people giggled and said, really, women having trouble with alcohol? We don't believe it. Um, three years later, uh, it looks uh, counterintuitive uh, in a different way. We um, that that I think was a tipping point series, and I'm very proud of it because I brought with those 14 that 14 part series um, uh, shed a lot of light on the issue both of marketing and the increase and the fact that it was global. And I think that's a big part of this that we're not seeing a big difference between women on various parts of the world. Um, And I did draw the connection to women and work. And um, uh, just as we've closed the gender gap in post-secondary and closed the gender gap at work in many ways, we're closing the gender gap here, and and really people shouldn't be surprised. What I was shocked by, and a lot of people were shocked by, was um, the health ramifications of drinking. We are equal democratically, but we are not equal uh, when it comes to metabolism or hormones, when it comes to um, processing alcohol. We are missing a key hormone, um, uh, an enzyme, excuse me, for digesting alcohol. We um, telescope, which means we become addicted much faster than men. 15%, that's one 5% of breast cancer cases are related to alcohol consumption. Well, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, um, my doctor said one glass of wine, the the difference between one glass of wine and two glasses of wine a night, um, there's a 50% greater chance of getting breast cancer. Right, right, right. This is... 
This is and that's pretty. That's a lot. Yeah, and it's something we're just not aware of. I think I think classically, we like to think of our red wine as dark chocolate. We don't. We know all about trans fats. We know all about tanning beds and their mm-hmm. risks, um, but we don't know the risks of our favorite drug. Um, and I do draw parallels to tobacco, where we were waking up and smelling the coffee in the '60s. We were targeted by the alcohol industries with Virginia Slims. And I draw a parallel and say, not trying to be a killjoy, I'm not saying don't drink, but I am saying be an educated consumer. Know that it's nine drinks a week only for uh, low-risk drinking guidelines for women. Nine? Nine? nine. That's a lot of drinking. Well, that means that on... on That's more than one a day. Yeah, on any one occasion, you know, we don't want you drinking more than two, and it means taking some days off. And it means being careful on your Friday and Saturday night when some people would tend not to be. And it means being cognizant and educated about what you're putting down your gullet. And we're seeing a very, very different pattern. Um, binge drinking, which is on the upswing for women, way on the upswing for women, um, is... Young women or professional women or both? Both. Or both. both. Okay. Is classically, and that, and that information, by the way, comes from the Centers for Disease Control. There was a big report in January of Vital Signs talking about the risks, the huge risks of, of binge drinking for American women. Um, that classically is six drinks per evening. Oof. That's a lot of alcohol. That, that's a lot of alcohol. We're talking about the intimate relationship between women and alcohol with Ian Dossett Johnson, uh, Johnston. Excuse me. Um, and what is drunkorexia? Drunkorexia is a very alarming um, reality on many campuses, and I will say campuses, although elsewhere as well. It's a combination of eating disorders and drinking too much, and classically known as drinking without dining. Oh, I can't even talk about if you drink too much and get a sick stomach. Can you imagine not eating and just drinking? Right, and um, some have called it drinking efficiently, which is alcohol is expensive, um, so you will drink hard liquor, um, vodka, you will not eat, you will not mix it with water, you will not, um, you know, rotate it with non-alcoholic drinks, and you will become very, very sick. Now, if you have anorexia, you could die from this very easily. If you have bulimia, it's a little, uh, yeah, a little bit different, but... The cognitive impairment related to drunkorexia is actually very damaging, and this is not an unrisky behavior. Um, it's on the rise with young women, and it's very scary. And College what kids, would you say? What we're seeing is, is also a real rise in terms of blood alcohol uh, content levels in young women. Um, there was a case recently with a young woman named Vodka Sam, called herself Vodka Sam, who was arrested at the University of Iowa um, trying to go on to the uh, foot- and interrupt a football game. Um, she was arrested by the police and from jail tweeted bragging about her blood alcohol content, which she said was epic. Um, she is sort of the poster girl for extreme drinking, uh, and an extreme drinking that is not uncommon, uncommon among uh, a generation that pre-drinks. So in other words, they don't drink and drive, but they pre-drink ahead of an evening out. They have a lot more alcohol around them. And um, it's it's a campus culture that people are scratching their heads about. They really don't know how to fix and it. And the cost of college, and they're all drinking. How crazy is that, huh? Exactly. Um, 
Ian, you know of what you speak. You made a dramatic career shift into the high ranks of academia only to find your career derailed by alcohol problems. Can you tell our listening audience more? Yeah, I um, I found myself um, drinking very safely in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, and then my son went off to college, and I was a single mom and found myself lonely and Emptiness. suffering from emptiness syndrome mm-hmm. and uh, depressed. And I made a geographical um took a geographical cure, took a very big job at McGill University in Montreal, and found myself working very hard, traveling a lot, and drinking more, and surprised myself, um, and found my life derailed, more than my career, my life derailed by drinking um, what had been, you know, two or three glasses of wine a night, turned into five glasses a night, and when it got to six, I took myself to rehab. Um and you were, um, you were obviously a typical high-functioning professional. I was a very high-functioning professional. I did not miss days at work. I did not crack up a car. I did not look like my mother who mixed thallium and cocktails in the 60s, a classic stay-at-home mom. Oh, I yeah, did mommy's not little helper. any of this. Mm-hmm. I, looked, I looked very different, and yet I was in deep trouble. So um, was there a predisposition for alcoholism um, in your family? Right. My father died of alcoholism, and my mother was a very long-term and severe alcoholic. So I should have been a lot more savvy, uh, and I was. Here's the irony. I was uh, savvy about alcohol problems. I didn't look like my mother, therefore I didn't think that my problems were um, alcoholic. They were. They were. I was using alcohol to numb, to deal with depression. Um, and I think that's the other question people have to ask themselves, um, listeners, is are you drinking for reasons other than just enjoyment and relaxing? If you're using it to numb and to be out of your own self and, and forget, um, you might want to think twice about uh, talking to a doctor instead um, and doing something else. Uh, I really did get into trouble. You know, just a... a uh, digressing here just for a minute. In, in my late 20s, I had had a physical and the doctor said, you know, I had high cholesterol. And so he said, start drinking red wine. That's actually how I started drinking wine. Um, I mean, I'm a, a pretty light drinker, but but nonetheless, I mean, that's how it started. It was a doctor that, that uh-huh. told me, you know. So, um, so you have a, quite a win. As the VP for McGill University, you had a window into women. Um, so what is the attraction to drinking for so many women more so than men. I mean, it's, it's obviously not an uncommon pattern, and values are so fuzzy around alcohol. Right. I think, I think that is the central um, social problem, is that mm-hmm. we have not, um, our values, as I say in the book, are fuzzy. We mm-hmm. really don't want to hear bad news about our favorite drug. We really mm-hmm. do want to unwind on a Friday night with our friends. We do not want to know that if we're drinking four or five drinks, that this is dangerous for us. Um, we tend to think in our culture that there, it's the rare alcoholic, the guy who lives under the bridge with a brown paper bag or the guy who cracks up his car or drinks and drives, is is the nasty person, and the rest of us are just fine. And if we're drinking too much, we're drinking like the Italian or French. Thank you very much, and we don't want to know anymore. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that 
are drinking is much riskier than we accept. I, you know, and it is connected to disease and and cancers much more than we know or it, or we even knew five years ago. And I'm just saying, let's have a conversation. Let's mm-hmm. have a conversation about the fact that, and this is an important point, it's cheap. It's dirt cheap. It's It hasn't really risen in cost in a long, long time. Taxes in the United States haven't gone up on alcohol in any real way since 1991. And it is um, in some gas stations where you can stop in some states, it's cheaper than orange juice, milk, or water. It's a very cheap sus- substance. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's amazing. And I just... I go back to it, you know, say it over and over again. It's just alcohol is just so much a part of our culture. I've often thought it must be so hard to be an alcoholic and to have to give that up because you just go from absolutely, you know, so much to nothing. And, and I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be happy if I had to give up my wine, you know, and I'm not, and as I said, I'm not a, a big drinker, but um, it, it's got to be really challenging. So tell us a little bit about, about you and rehab and, and what that was like for you. Yeah, rehab was really quite remarkable and easy and wonderful and nurturing. And it was easy. It was 30 days. And getting out of rehab was challenging and difficult because of exactly what you've nailed. Right. It's not an easy culture to not be a drinker. And so you get to your first Christmas, your first New Year's, your first birthday, your first cocktail party, and these are not easy challenges to navigate. You have to really... Do your push-ups in terms of growth, in terms of managing whatever Mm -hmm. issues you may have been medicating, in my case, depression, Mm -hmm. um, what you were medicating. And And it it is a depressant anyway. So it's, it's, it's a depressant. It's likely to make you more depressed. Absolutely. So um, it's hard. It was a hard, uh, challenging thing, and I have to be really candid. I'm really happy that it's five years mm-hmm. uh, ago that I had to wrestle with my first year of sobriety, and I am uh, entering my sixth year, and I'm happy to be doing so because I have some tools and I have I have uh, found a way to navigate life in a happy way, and I am a much happier person, um, hands down. Well, I mean, you must physically feel so much better. I mean, I just can't imagine having five or six glasses of or, or, or five or six uh, cocktails a night and then getting up and going to work. I mean, you just must have been just dragging your butt. Yeah, I was a I was highly, highly uh, functioning human being, and I didn't, uh, and I, you know, stuck to wine. I was a wine drinker, and yes, I was. Um, Uh, That's a lot of sugar on top of everything else. That's a a ton of sugar to put down your gullet. So um, I think that, that, um, look, most people don't want to have to resort to to the extreme that I did um, and have to go to rehab. Um, If you have a problem, uh, do talk to your family members. And I think the great advantage of our generation is that we speak to one another. My, in my family, we weren't allowed to talk about my mother's drinking. Mm-hmm. When I, my drinking became um, a problem, my son confronted me, and I write about that in the book. My son Good gave him. me a Mother's Day card that said, here's a happy mother. The whites of her eyes are white, and she's drinking Perry, not wine. And I took that as a warning sign. And, You're and very lucky. Very he loves you very much. He loves me very much. Yeah. and. And we just crossed America in a pickup truck together. We have a great relationship. We uh, he lives in L.A. and we 
we um, we saw America um, together and have a relationship that, frankly, we wouldn't be able to have had I not quit drinking. So there is happiness on the other side, but I'm not saying it isn't a struggle. What, what were some of the challenges of going from being an alcoholic or having an issue with alcohol to, to becoming sober? What were some of the things that you experienced? Um. Did you say the challenges of being sober? Yeah. I mean, it, first of all, you know, you went to a cocktail party, and if you, you know, if you don't have, you know, if, I, if I've gone out, let's say I've gone out on a Friday night and I've had two glasses of wine, and I'm right. going out again on a Saturday night, I will not drink on Saturday night because it, it's just too much. I, you know, I'm a small right. girl, and it's just too much for me. Um, and, and But people inevitably ask, well, why aren't you drinking? Right, they always ask, why aren't you drinking? You know, or, or th- that person must be an alcoholic because they, they're not drinking. You know, where, to me, I mean, your, your body has got to, you know, I mean, it is poison that you are putting into your system. Right. Well, there's so many great tricks. I mean, if you really want to um, protect your privacy, you can always say you're on antibiotics or you're on a cleanse. Those are little tricks if someone's listening and they want... They want not to talk about it. Those are always things that you can use. Frankly, um, life got a lot easier for me when I could say, look, it doesn't agree with me. Mm -hmm. It's like peanuts. Um, I wouldn't eat peanuts if I had a peanut allergy. I have an alcohol allergy, and I found that an easy way to to, – navigate it but one of the things one of the things i would say to anybody is always have a drink in your hand always have a diet coke or a perrier or something or a cup of coffee or something to make you feel um part of the group and frankly the only people who really have trouble with you're not drinking are people who have problem with their drinking themselves usually that's the only person who's really going to notice most people don't care mm-hmm. um we're just we're talking to Ann Dossett Johnson, who is author of Drink: The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. I have a question here um, from Facebook. It's Yvette from Boston. She says, "I have about five glasses of wine a week. My doctor considers me a light drinker. Why do I feel like I'm drinking too much then?" That's interesting. I would say at five glasses a week, you're just fine. I think your doctor's probably correct. Um, I would ask, um, I think one question of yourself is, are you drinking for the right reasons? If you're drinking for the right reasons, as in it's celebratory or relaxing and it's not to numb and, and blackout, then then you're probably just fine. Um, still, um, as we age, drinking can change. Um, one uh, Something you hear from women a lot is once they hit menopause, the amount they drink um, really matters. Uh, what they had previously been able to drink with impunity all of a sudden uh, shifts. And so um, have a look at, have a look at, other changes in your life, you never know. I also think the more emotionally uh, evolved you are uh, in terms of handling your emotions, handling depression or anxiety, um, you probably can handle alcohol. But if we're going through bumps in life, which are maybe turbulent mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. full of turmoil, often a drink can um, go to your head a lot faster. It's a very powerful substance. I, we actually have... Um time for just one more question. Roberta from Salem. I have a friend who I think is drinking way, way, way too much. Every time I try and talk to her about it, she will have no part of it. Further, she wants to drink when we go out, and because I don't like to drive at night, I let her. But I am becoming afraid of being in the car with her. Any tips, Anne, on what I can say to help her? 
Well, if somebody you know is drinking too much, I, I can't stress it enough. You have to raise the issue. And I will say um, denial marks alcohol problems. So they, yes, won't like it. Um, I, I don't expect the person to appreciate your raising it. But um, it will hit their subconscious. It will hit their conscious. It is the only thing that a responsible friend can do. And in my case, it wasn't just my son. It was my best friend who drove me home one night and said, um, I think you need to do something about your drinking. And I nodded my head and within six weeks was booked in somewhere. So um, friends are very powerful. We can change each other's lives. We owe mm-hmm. it to one another to speak up. It's really important. Ann Dossett Johnston author of Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. Thanks so much for being here and talk with Francesca today. Lots of great information. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Francesca. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Next up, there are women who genuinely don't know whether they want to be moms. No matter their relationship or job status, many are stuck in a purgatory of uncertainty, quietly terrified that by the time they decide they want to reproduce, it'll be too late to have biological children. The rundown on egg freezing for women will be right back. I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm healthy. What's more American than the freedom of driving your car down the open road? Ultimately, the American dream can become a nightmare when your car breaks down. Car repairs can run $1,500, $3,000, even $5,000 for your blown air conditioning, radiator, transmission, or onboard computer. And you know the mechanic is taking advantage of you. Protect yourself and your car. Stop paying these repair bills. It's time to take a stand with coverage that could put you back in control. Listen to this. Cars with less than 125,000 miles can qualify for the best auto repair protection coverage ever. Protect your rights. Stop paying crazy money to fix your car after it breaks. Call now for a free quote. 800-706-7063 Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare and it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terami is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. If you're looking for a full-service upholstery workshop, look no further than J.C. Upholstering in Lynn. We have you covered whether it's upholstery, reupholstery, furniture repair, slipcovers, or custom furniture design. Specializing in car and boat interiors, as well as antiques. We are the company that North Shore Interior Designers trust because of our quality workmanship. Contact us today for a free consultation or estimate on your residential or commercial upholstery, furniture, or antiques project. Call 781-599-8515 or visit us online at jcupholstering.net. Moving into your new home or office is easy when you trust the experienced professional movers of the Brickhouse Moving Company. And if you're looking for dedicated movers who will take the stress out of your next move, call the Brickhouse Moving Company at 978-278-3578. We serve all of New England, both residential and commercial moves. No job is too small. 
Doing the move yourself? No problem. Brickhouse Moving can provide you with all the packing materials you'll need. Call us today at 978-278-3578 or visit us online at BrickhouseMovingCompany.com. Hi, I'm Donna McGovern, and I'm a real estate agent working in the Remax on the River office in the beautiful coastal town of Newburyport. I enjoy working with clients on the North Shore and in the Merrimack Valley areas. One of my specialties is I have an eco-broker certification, meaning I have a deep interest in protecting our environment and in energy efficiencies and cost-saving ideas. Buying and selling a home I know is an investment of which one must take seriously, but I also think it's important to have fun along the way. I found that the most successful transactions have been based on mutual trust and respect between all involved parties. I hope you take the time to give me a call so we can set up an appointment to meet and I can provide some information on how to have a positive and successful home buying and home selling experience. The number to reach me is 978-992-4535. That's 978-992-4535. If I were your real estate agent, you'd be home now. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca every Saturday morning right here on 1510 NBC and Yahoo Sports Radio Boston. Being unsure about taking the plunge to parenthood isn't exactly a new phenomenon. What is new, however, is the option to freeze your eggs, to give yourself more time to figure it out. After the procedure was declared mainstream medicine last fall, fertility doctors are reporting a surge of patients and more younger women are thinking about stashing away some frozen fertility for the future. As well as a doctor, you are a medical writer. Why did you write about women freezing their eggs, Daniela? Well, I'm um, actually in pulmonary critical care, so uh, there wasn't a clear overlap from my specialty, but I'm 32 years old. I'm uh-huh. a female. Okay. And I had been reading a lot, uh, not really because I had sought it out, per se, but because there was a lot in the media about this. And I felt as though I still had questions, mm-hmm. specifically more pragmatic questions. How does this really work? What is it? What is the history? Um, along those lines uh, that I felt like a lot of the media hype hadn't necessarily addressed. And so I kind of wanted to find out, and I wanted to find out, Beyond the Kim Kardashian and stories of a 36-year-old businesswoman in New York City, uh, mm-hmm. who was doing it and what were their reasons and what was their decision-making process? And would you find out? So I think what was most interesting to me was that a lot of the women who have considered going through this and, and are have gone through it, at least the ones I spoke to, with, did it with the hope that they would never actually end up having to use these frozen eggs. Really? So it wasn't that it was part of a new life plan whereby you have this awesome child-free life of brief partnerships until you're 37 and then you say, well, you know, I got these eggs uh, in the cryobank. Let me go find them. Um, this was really something where people were sort of coming to terms with the fact that maybe their lives didn't look exactly the way that they had thought they might. Mm-hmm. And here is a technology that perhaps they would end up using to create a life that was different but didn't 
exclude the possibility of children. But so they weren't really necessarily wanting to ever have to use the eggs. Nah, they didn't want to use them. I mean, it's much easier it's much easier not to, it seems. Right. You know, if, if you can have a child uh, naturally, then there, ideally one would not go through uh, the other end process of invert, in vitro right, fertilization, course, which is course. required to in, use the eggs. Yeah, in my mind, I was thinking these eggs were fertilized, so I was thinking a little differently. Right. Um, so that's where I kind of get messed up there. Um, so what does egg freezing actually entail? So eggs are, uh, as the embryologist described to me, eggs are very delicate, Um there's, they are. <laughs> yes. Um, but I hadn't really known what, and perhaps, you know, one thing, this is a bit of a, a digression, but one thing that I thought was really interesting that I sort of came upon was that while we're taught very repetitively um, growing up about uh, the risk of getting pregnant, it's, you know, God forbid you get pregnant, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're taught about uh, contraception, we're really taught about fertility very well. And so um, there are a lot of kind of questions of, you know, the difference between a frozen egg and a frozen embryo and why is an egg harder to freeze? And so that sort of gets to your question of what it entails. And an egg is harder to freeze than an embryo because eggs have so much water in them. And water, when you freeze it, makes ice crystals, and that messes up the, the, the eggs. It messes up the DNA. It, it uh, acts as one embryologist describes as sort of old daggers. So basically, the uh, scientists had to find a new way to freeze, and so they have found this new way. It's a fra- flash freezing method ca- called vitrification, which basically brings the egg from a room, room normal temperature to the temperature of uh, liquid nitrogen. And... That's all to say that, I mean, that's the part that the woman doesn't actually go through, but it took years to develop that science uh, to make this something that the American Society for Reproductive Medicine thought had potential enough to no longer call experimental last year. So the science of it was interesting and complex, and it continues uh, to, to, you know, scientists are continuing to, to work on sort of better, more reproducible methods. For a woman who wants to do it, it involves hormones. Um, they, one would have to take, the goal is to freeze not just one egg, but a whole bunch, um, ideally 10 to 12. <laughs> so say most uh, obstetrician gynecologists who specialize in this. Uh, so a woman will have to take hormones to rev up the production of their eggs and then go through ultrasounds sort of daily throughout this process to check. But isn't that uh, dangerous to, to be revving uh, up the hormones? I mean, there are some risks. Uh, there's a, an entity called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome right. where right. you get sort of fluid buildup all over your body as a result of this. But these aren't long-term hormonal therapies. This is for an eight-day period. Uh, so most of the, the reproductive endocrinologists I spoke with said, while it is not a procedure without risk, as nothing is without yeah. risk, the risk uh, to the woman physically during this procedure, if it's somebody who's healthy coming into it, et cetera, is, is fairly minimal. Is there an age where women can no longer freeze their eggs? An age where women can no longer freeze their eggs. Um, so before uh, somebody would set out on freezing eggs, they do uh, a couple of tests to see basically whether somebody is even going to be able to produce eggs as a result of this hormonal stimulation. There's some blood tests. So, you know, if, if that's 
So that would be a first bar. And if you don't pass that test, and that sort of becomes a question in the early 40s, then they wouldn't go ahead. Um, if you pass that test, even if you're in the early 40s, there's a question of whether your eggs are going to be chromosomally okay. Right. And right. that is harder to tell. Um, so it seems that most people will not freeze eggs past uh, 41, 42, 43, but perhaps that in time will be a, a moving target as well. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with Dr. Daniela Lamas about egg freezing. So what is the difference, Daniela, between freezing eggs and freezing embryos? Well, embryos are take out one more step of the are, are one step farther down the process of turning into a result, which would be a baby. Uh, so an embryo, as we know, is a fertilized egg. Mm -hmm. And so you freeze an egg, you still have the question of uncertainty of whether down the road the egg, if you, when it is thawed, if it is to be thawed, when it is thawed, will it fertilize? And so... Freezing an embryo, you've already gotten that question answered. You only freeze the, the embryo once an egg has already been fertilized. So there's an extra degree of certainty to that. Um, and uh, essentially, because of the technologies and this water question, uh, reproductive endocrinologists have more experience with freezing embryos. It's just been around for longer. Uh, that said, uh, people point to the fact that freezing embryos is perhaps more desirable for people in a different kind of situation than those who choose to freeze eggs. Freezing eggs freezes your genetic information only, mm -hmm. not that that has already been melded with someone else's. So if there's a question of not knowing who your partner is going to be mm -hmm. and thinking that it might be important to have a child, a biological child who's DNA incorporates both a woman and the woman's partner, then that would be somebody who would think of freezing an egg potentially rather than freezing an embryo. If that makes it, sense. Well, yeah, it does. It, it sounds so complex. How common is it? So there have been more than 2,000 babies born from frozen eggs wow. thus far reported in the literature. Mm -hmm. In terms of how many women have frozen eggs, it's really hard to know because there isn't yet a, there's not a centralized data bank of numbers of frozen eggs that, that exist. There are centers now that are starting to do this after the Society for Reproductive Medicine lifted its label and said that this was, you know, not an experimental technology. Different, a lot more centers started to do it. And so it's hard to know how many people have done it as there just isn't a centralized database. It's a good question. So is it kind of a new thing? It's kind of an, it's, it's. Or how it's new is it? Of, when did it, when was the first, when, yes. when did this first happen? So with this technology that's being used um, more now, uh, that started to be used more actually in Europe um, initially. So in Italy, uh, because uh, religious uh, concerns kept people from freezing multiple embryos. You know, if this is a life, right. then right. you're not right. yeah. eventually going to actually use it. That yes. becomes a problem. So they right. started looking at freezing eggs earlier mm -hmm. and started this even in the late 90s. Um, here, it's gone on, you know, for the past decade or so at least, but uh, 
it started out sort of more for people who were freezing eggs uh, for medical reasons that might destroy their fertility, say cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And um, looking at those data, then it started becoming extrapolated for people who were freezing eggs to extend their sort of fertility window. Um, and just in 2012, so just last year, uh, the Society for Reproductive Medicine said that looking at all the data that had been accumulated, uh, they felt that the technology uh, should no longer be called experimental, which it was up until that point. Mm -hmm. You know, that said, uh, insurance still doesn't cover it. Um, so that obviously is... Well, insurance doesn't cover a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and it's, but it's a barrier, I mean, in terms right. of it's... it's uh, well, because it's probably know, very costly, no? Yeah, it is. Kind of depends where you are. In Boston, um, it's uh, about $8,000 uh, with a, for procedure plus medications. That's kind of the lower end. But if somebody, you know, needs multiple steps, sort of, it needs, you know, another round of hormones to get a, enough eggs, mm -hmm. that sort of 10 to 12 that doctors ideally want to be, uh, to have the potential for return down the road, that can be more expensive. So, yeah, there's a lot of people for whom this is not an accessible technology. So, how long are these eggs in the freezer? I mean, you know. Really good question. Well, I you know, know, I mean, think yeah. about it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, ice cream gets uh, ice crystals on it, you know, just. <laughs> so, yeah, so. With this new sort of flash freezing technology, that concern about um, ice crystals is seems to say uh, embryologists is is a non is a non concern. Um, you know, embryos have been frozen for decades. There isn't a, there isn't a uh, an expiration date on those. So. OBGYNs say that that there isn't an expiration date on on eggs either. It's a very interesting. You, one does pay for yearly storage, but it is it is a very. <laughs> it's so it's, business. It's, it's so weird. It's, I mean, it's it's so. What does it cost really for storage? Depends where you store, I'm told, but somewhere between a couple hundred to more than that. I think that depends on whether they're sent to a sort of larger storage facility that can cut, that you know cuts has lower costs because they store more, um, which people say you do if you don't expect to use them in mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of years. And there's no reason to keep them at like your local hospital, I suppose. So can we talk about you? You're 32 years old. Do you have children? I do not have children. No. And um. Does this idea appeal to you? You know, it's something that I've thought. It's something that I, I think that I will continue to. This is such a such an equivocating response. But you know, going through all these interviews and talking to talking to women who made this decision wasn't an easy decision for any of them. And nobody could tell me, yes, definitely do this. You know, they said, well, they they thought that that perhaps it might be useful, and they didn't want to regret later. And it's a really interesting dynamic of avoiding future regret. And right. But, but what makes it so difficult to make that decision? I mean, to, I guess to me, I think money is a big one. Okay, okay, right, okay. But besides, but but other than money, what would be, you know, difficult making this kind of a decision? Um, you know, I think I, I guess the the idea of going through going through a medicalized procedure. Yeah. Yep, okay. Um, yep. And and you know, for for some people, and and perhaps you know. For for me, if I were thinking about such a thing like this, it would be, it's it's always it's hard to 
try to make steps that acknowledge right. that life might be different than you thought it would be. Right. I agree. Um, yes. Yes. You know, I think that there's, I mean, people describe to me that after they did this, you know, little steps like going and being in the waiting room with women who are all uh, with their partners there for IVS, um, that they felt that there was a certain loneliness and, and mm. uh, you know, that, that that sentiment was was kind of difficult to, to sit with. You know, I think that, I think that deciding to do something like this is, is, um, Something that it's almost easier not to do, clearly, because it is hard to, it's hard to make those sort of very obvious kind of acknowledgments to oneself right. saying, you know, my life might end up being hard. I might have to spend this money to do this. This might not happen the way I assumed. That's a long response to your question, but. No, um, no, no. It's, it's very, yeah. it's very interesting. But can a woman guarantee that she'll actually end up with a child if she freezes no, her eggs? No, no. Well, so I didn't, I didn't really part. think so, but figured I had to ask the question. Just no, wouldn't, no, wouldn't and, seem and, right if I had this conversation with right. you without asking this. No, and, and, and it's really hard to give numbers to it either. I mean, that's what's something that I really wanted to come to in, in the, the piece that I wrote, saying, all right, well, if you do this and they get this many eggs, this is the chance that you'll have a child. But, the, I mean, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say that even if somebody is 25 and you know, sexually active, what is the chance that they're going to have it? I mean, we, we have those numbers sort of better, but, no, there isn't, there, isn't a, there isn't a guarantee. And so it's this idea that down the road, you might pursue this without the promise. So now you're okay. spending eight, ten thousand, twelve thousand right. dollars, and and you don't know whether the the eggs are healthy. Right. I mean, they can take looks, you know, so they're, they're able to, they, they don't freeze eggs unless they pass, you know, various sort of parameters of mm. acceptability. But yeah, you don't know. Right. So you know, chances are to... that they'll fertilize because we have new, better technologies with that. And then if they fertilize, chances are that they'll implant. But no, there's not, there's not, there's no, you know, there's no 100% guarantee. And that's scary too, because if you wait and you're 40 and using these eggs, mm. well, chances are you're surely not going to have a baby naturally either. So, um, right. yeah, I think. Well, it's like in vitro. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it's not as, you know, it, it's, there is this. Fertility. I mean, people really, they don't know so much about fertility. People are so confused. They really it. are. I mean, because, you know, it's always in the press, you know, the women, the 40-year-old woman that has baby or whatever. And you know what? 40-year-old women don't really have babies. I mean, yes, no. of course they do have babies, but that is not a time to have a baby. I mean, no, for, I mean it's, it's, a, it's a young yeah. man's sport, and it's not, and, it's, and for a variety of reasons. But it's it really, I mean, it's um, women think that they have forever um, because of the media, and, and that's not true. You know, and that's why I asked you when you said you're 32, and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's still young enough. But, I mean, you are definitely getting into that age group, mm -hmm. um, dare I say. But but really, I mean, obviously, you're, you're a doctor. You know this. But... Um, you know, I mean, you don't have to worry like you're, you're 40, but of course you never know if you're going to get pregnant or not anyway. Right, so, you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you know where to go to freeze eggs? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Botox. I mean, when it, right. once it started getting really popular, I mean, everyone was, was, uh, pricking women's foreheads and and cheeks and whatnot, you know, and, and then it was like, whoa, you just can't go to anyone for Botox. I know this is very different, but how do you know where where to go and where to be, you know, certain that this is going to, at least your chances are, are, are good. Yeah. So that's, that's a, I think really good question. I think that, and particularly 
as um, there there isn't a nationwide database of, of outcomes. Uh, so you can't say, you know, this center generally has this percentage of mm-hmm. X. So I would really say to go to places that have been doing this for a while, that can tell what's a while like a fertility, before, like a, an actual fertility center, or yeah, I would yeah. go to a either a fertility center, an academic institution, uh, in your your you know home home institution, and ask how many. I think it's probably you know particularly important to, to ask whether people, whether they've had experience, say, maybe they haven't been freezing eggs for what's called social reasons for Mm -hmm. people who Mm -hmm. want to preserve their fertility for the future. Uh, Maybe they've been freezing eggs for cancer patients, say, uh, but have been using these technologies. Ask, you know, how many people have have come back? Have you had a live birth as a result of this yet? Um, That's obviously hard if somebody just started, if a center just started freezing eggs last year when the society said it's no longer experimental, but that was based on data. So there have been centers who have been doing this beforehand. So I would say to ask hard questions about experience and ask if you can talk to somebody who has gone through this. You know, there are a bunch, there are a bunch of, of sort of both academic and, you know, not hospital affiliated centers. And I think that not that one is better than the other, but I think what would make the center the best is to find out how long they've been doing this for and what kind of outcomes they were able to to offer. Danielle, how did your perception of egg freezing shift over the course of reporting and writing the article? I think that coming to terms with the fact that it is uh, that there that there is uncertainty. Um, I think actually, rephrase, I think I went into it with the idea that I was either going to somehow, and this is obviously speaks sort of to my own perception of myself, but I was going to somehow discover that this was some sham that the media had just been promoting mindlessly, mm-hmm. or I was going to find out that this was the best thing and I should probably do it right away. And... I think that coming to terms with the nuance of it uh, is sort of how my perception shifted. That it's not it's not a, a sham. I mean, this is this is a a technology that people have had babies as a result. Uh, but neither is it something that is a hundred percent sort of emotionally and physically painless that will a hundred percent allow you to keep open a window of having a child for decades to come. And I think that that one thing for me that was powerful was that thinking about this technology, having these conversations really made me realize, and we've brought this up in this conversation, to what extent we aren't taught, we don't think, and the sort of psyche is such it's in our best interest almost not to think about fertility. You know, we talk about 40 being the new 30, right. and that, that's true to some extent physically, but at the same time, you know, you, you uh, fertility decreases, and Absolutely. and you know, thinking about what you want your life to look like and what you want your family to look like and whether this technology might fit into that is complex. And I think that sort of appreciating the depth of that complexity was what I came to. Lots of great information, Danielle. Is there anything that you'd like our listening audience to know before we say goodbye? No, I I think they hope that that about covers it. it. It sure does. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much for being on Talk with Francesca today. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay. All right. It's time to say until next week, but you don't have to wait until next week for us to chat. Send me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com, and I'll get right back to you. And if you want to know more about what's on the horizon, you can visit my website, talkwithfrancesca.com, and click on Upcoming Shows. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you again to my guests, Ann Johnston and Dr. Daniela Lamas, and, of course, my awesome producer, See you next week. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag? If you're looking for a full-service upholstery workshop, look no further than J.C. Upholstering in Lynn. We have you covered whether it's upholstery, reupholstery, furniture repair, slipcovers, or custom furniture design. Specializing in car and boat interiors, as well as antiques. We are the company that North Shore Interior Designers trust because of our quality workmanship. Contact us today for a free consultation or estimate on your residential or commercial upholstery furniture or antiques project. Call 781-599-8515 or visit us online at jcupholstering.net. Hi, I'm Donna McGovern, and I'm a real estate agent working in the Remax on the River office in the beautiful coastal town of Newburyport. I enjoy working with clients on the North Shore and in the Merrimack Valley areas. One of my specialties is I have an eco-broker certification, meaning I have a deep interest in protecting our environment and in energy efficiencies and cost-saving ideas. Buying and selling a home I know is an investment of which one must take seriously, but I also think it's important to have fun along the way. i found that the most successful transactions have been based on mutual trust and respect between all involved parties. I hope you take the time to give me a call so we can set up an appointment to meet and I can provide some information on how to have a positive and successful home buying and home selling experience. The number to reach me is 978-992-4535. That's 978-992-4535. If I were your real estate agent, you'd be home now. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com.